If you have little ones through grade six, you'd like them to be in Sunday school right now, they can go. And for the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would. It's good to be back together again, and I hope that your Thanksgiving was great. We have many, many still traveling in prayer for them. Um, I'd rather take a beating than be on 95 right now, and uh, I've done that many times right after Thanksgiving. That is no fun, uh, especially as you come up to Greensboro. That's always a blast, sitting there in a parking lot with uh, 10,000 other cars. So that's where Alex is and a number of other folks, so <laughs> keep them in your prayers that uh, we might, you know, when you're there, that's when you really find out if you have patience and if the Lord's working in you and you're, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, right, when you're in amongst all of those other drivers. Anyway, let's, um, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. We're actually going to introduce this today because um, uh, my own fault, we failed to do that last week as we got, uh, we kind of reiterated some things that I think were important. But today, let's pick up in chapter 11. We're going to introduce our passage this morning. And uh, I pray there will be a blessing to you. I have, been, I have become foolish, verse 11 says. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. Verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For verse 13, in what respect? Were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me, this wrong. Stop right there. More than enough for our time today. In the Akron Beacon Journal, there was a story of a local sportscaster who's doing a radio coverage of an Indiana high school football game, and he was doing it from the stands. He used a a chart listing the names and numbers and positions of the players to help him describe the action. And then it began to rain. And the ink on his list began to run. And the numbers on the backs of the players were covered with mud. Identifying the home team was no problem. But the only familiar name on the lineup of the visiting Chicago team was that of Blansky, a linebacker who was up for all state. As local listeners didn't know the Chicago players and his station wasn't powerful enough to reach Chicago, the sportscaster made up the names of every Chicago player but Blansky. And since Blansky was the only legitimate name, he did his play-by-play with Blansky making most of the tackles. The next day, the Chicago coach called him to say he'd done a really nice job of covering the game except for one thing. Blansky had broken his leg the game before and had spent the second half in the hospital listening to himself playing one fantastic game. Ronald Reagan, in a speech in Indianapolis, told the story of a farmer who took a piece of bad earth and made things flourish. And proud of his accomplishments, he asked the minister to come by and see what he'd done, and the minister comes, was very impressed, That's the tallest corn I've ever seen. I've never seen anything as big as those melons. Praise the Lord. And he went on through the property, of course, about every crop, praising the Lord for all of it. Finally, the farmer couldn't take it anymore, and he said, Reverend, I wish you could have seen this property when the Lord was doing it by himself. Everybody's had the misfortune at one time or another of of not receiving credit for something they've accomplished. I think we all can remember a particular situation where you did something and nobody knew and, and worse, somebody else got the credit for it. That old saying, there's no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't care who gets the credit, sounds fine and good until you work hard and somebody else gets the credit, right? But this is exactly where Paul is in this new section. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. What Paul has done has been credited to false apostles. And Paul is winding up his defense, which he hates to do, which is why he calls it becoming foolish, and he reminds them that they should have been appreciative of all he's done and all he's accomplished. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 illustrates this understanding really well, and, and this will help us introduce Paul's thoughts to us in this whole new section as we move away from uh, that uh, section before. And verse 1 says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Uh, the meaning is that by the grace of God, the church came into being through the apostles' ministry and, and that it consequently is his validation. So he said, you know, you should have complimented me on that. You should have, you should have been, I should have been commended by you, but I wasn't. But regardless of that, back here in 2 Corinthians 3.1, he didn't need any other validation. Church was the letter. Whatever the claims to fame given out by the intruders at Corinth, Paul and no other pioneered the cause of Christ in the city. And it's funny, in a sad kind of way, how Paul continually has to address this issue. Paul doesn't want to write his own reference letter. In our passage, he was made to be foolish because he had to defend himself. I didn't come up short here in Corinth. He said, you're my proof. You are our letter, that's what he says. It was an internal proof written in lives that were changed and are being changed. And then he expresses it this way. He says, written in our hearts. This is how Paul feels about them. He loves them. Yes, there are people there who have gossiped about him. Yes, there are people there who continually argue with him. Uh, this is a church that couldn't get communion right. This is a church where everybody had a prophecy and everybody had a tongue. And the services uh, at times were out of control. This is a church where there were factions, where there were divisiveness, and where false teachers had come and had taught a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different spirit, and they had accepted it. Even though they did all of that and much more, Paul says they were written in his heart. Perfect passive of the verb engrafo. That's where we get our word engraved. They were engraved on his heart. When those lives were changed, they were written by the Lord on the heart of Paul. So you can imagine then, as we've gone through all these past sections, how much their betrayal and rebellion must have hurt him. Which is why we say that thorn or that stake in the side of the, the Apostle Paul, that pain in the flesh that he felt, could really have just been the continuously rebellious church that he could physically do nothing to remedy. It could easily have been that, and we can see that. Regardless, they are engraved on his heart. That's a completed action. They are there from now on. So no matter the naysayers and the false apostles and their claims, lives were changed and people were growing and maturing, and the Lord made that clear to Paul. Because the Corinthians remain the Lord's, they're going to stand for all time then as Paul's letter of commendation. So Paul, even though he has classified himself as a nobody and had wonderful assurance that God, the Lord was able to use him to accomplish this plan of salvation, uh, he understands no man can derive him of that calm assurance that the Lord has employed him in being part of this harvest. So wherever he goes, he has that internal witness from God. His confidence remains unshakable. But what's written upon his heart can't be misunderstood. 
And so they can't twist that around and mean something besides what it means. And like a love letter written by someone dearest to you, Paul can take a look at this letter anytime he needs encouragement and no one can ever take it from him. So when he says, I should have been committed by you, it's not that he is somehow waiting for that commendation. Like some preachers, they want to make sure that people tell them how great a job they're doing. It's kind of, a, kind of a backwards way to pat yourself on the back. If you're waiting for that as a minister, you're going to be waiting a long time. Okay, And that's perfectly fine because that is not the reason why we do it. But Paul understands that his ministry among the church is a written letter. Can never be taken away. People grow. People are doing things that they're doing, and that is the Lord at work. And nobody can take that from him. And those are just delightful words for Paul, and and really reveal his inner thoughts as we think about that. A very encouraging also to those of us who labor for the kingdom, in the sufficiency of Christ. That when there's things that have happened, that becomes this letter. Nobody can take that from you. He's also carried along by the Holy Spirit to point out those false apostles standing in the congregation taking credit for everything good, he says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Everybody can see this letter, see? So what kind of letter is on Paul's heart inscribed there by the Lord? What kind of letter is visible and read by all men? First part of verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. So in spite of the inconsistency, which is really describes all of us, doesn't it? And the heartache, when you give out the scripture, it produces results. It is the teaching of Jesus that writes this letter. And, and, and this points again to the sufficiency of scripture we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. Paul had to be foolish and remind them of those things. But after all this is done, this is a letter written by Jesus. And it's done because he was able to give out the word of God. It produced those results. And again, this is what, this is what the church is supposed to do. And uh, perhaps you've not, been, you've not belonged to a church that did this, but this is important. You know, the only thing that's going to come about where people will come to faith and they will come to sanctification and they'll grow and they'll be involved in ministry is when the word is turned loose. It's not the wittiness of the pastor. We're not supposed to be a church that has really cutting edge whatever and lots of video. and We look cool and we give a good story and it's really funny and all that kind of... Listen, there's no power in any of that. When the, when the word is released in people's lives, it changes them. See? It's powerful to do that. And so a minister has to do that. That's what the church is supposed to do. To make disciples and sanctify them through the truth. And that kind of thing was always on Paul's mind. His sufficiency was found in the power of God and, and in his word. So when you see that, I should have been committed by you. Don't think Paul's feeling sorry for himself. He's not. He's just stating a fact. He knew he was responsible uh, to do what he faithfully did. And remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Remember when he, he talked about the early ministry when he was there. What? What then is Apollos, he said, and what is Paul? I'll tell you, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You see that? So Paul gave out the gospel, but it was the Lord giving the opportunity. When I bring the message of the word to you, I give that word to you. You have the opportunity from the Lord to respond to it, don't you? When, you're, when there's, when there's a, a movement in your own heart to respond to something that is said in the word of God, that's because the word of God was made clear and then the Lord gave you an opportunity to respond. It's exactly the same way here. And millions of Christians sit in churches where the word of God is released, and they have an opportunity to obey, and they don't. See? So realize there's, there's uh, impetus on you as well to respond, and me, as I read the word of God, and it's loosed in my life, then I have, I have this opportunity God has given me to respond. And that's what Paul says. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Again, a couple different jobs, but God's the one doing the growing. So then... Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So again, same kind of idea in our, in our own passage we're in now. We're nothing. God's the one who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according 
to his own labor. A couple of things to remember here. Now, as we look at that passage and remind ourselves of that, as it relates to Paul's work as a ministry and your work in the ministry, number one, uh, get your eyes on Jesus. The human instrument is irrelevant. Okay? The Lord can use anyone he wants to bring the word of God to people. Pastors, ministers are just attendants. And when they're weak in their own me, then they are adequate under rowers and house managers. They're stewards. Be not, you know, the Lord says, be not many teachers, because those is a greater condemnation. Or is appointed unto a steward that he be found faithful. And in here, people often ask, you know, how do we determine who, who we're, we're paying to do the job that they do and, and who are, who are, um, uh, our volunteers are, and, and it has to do with being a steward. So a steward is someone who would be generally in charge of a big portion of the congregation weekly. They determine the schedule, they're determining the teaching, they're making sure people are coming, they're, all, they're over those people. Those kinds of people are stewards, and they're, we're spo- they're supposed to be faithful, see. So get your eyes off Jesus, the human instrument is relevant. Pastors, ministers, their attendants, when they're weak, they're on me, then they're adequate, and under roars and house manners. And that's why I said, even though the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And Paul says, you know, the only reason I was involved, Paul says, uh, the only reason we're involved, you and I, is because the Lord gave that to us. We're just a tool. It doesn't minimize the labor. It doesn't minimize the outcome. In fact, we're supposed to be fervent in, in the ministry. Paul can still point out to the church in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, that they should have commended him. But ultimately, Paul says, the only reason you came to Christ through me is because the Lord works through the power of the gospel set loose from the word of God. The word of God is presented, the power of the gospel is there, and you were able to respond because the Lord gave you that opportunity. The only reason you've grown in your faith is because God is at work in you. The only reason you are a letter written permanently on our hearts and known and read by everyone who sees you is because Jesus is writing it. And I'm just, Paul says, a tool. And that's what every minister needs to remember. As you do your ministry, as you minister to your small group, your Sunday school class, whatever it is, you are just a tool that the Lord is using to release his word. And that's what they need. Church was made for the word. And Paul really makes this clear in verse 6 as he uses an agricultural expression. He says, I planted, but Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So number three, we have jobs to do. So it doesn't minimize the fact that there are things that you need to do. You keep your eyes on Jesus. The human instrument is irrelevant. The only reason you have ministry at all, the only reason we're involved is because the Lord gave that to us and we're tool. And then we have jobs to do. Under rowers, ministers, attendants, house managers, they don't get honored for doing their job. They just get into trouble for not doing it correctly. See, you've been given that oversight. You're supposed to do that faithfully. The Lord expects faithfulness. A steward is to be found faithful. Paul says, Apollos and I had different ministries, different giftings, different approaches, uh, but God produced the result, and he does it through the teaching of the word. And not only did we differ in our gifting and in our approaches, ultimately we are nothing. That's the same word that he used of himself here in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So when it comes right down to it, we are nothing. I'm just a servant through whom you perhaps came to Christ. I'm just a servant whom perhaps through perhaps you grew in Christ, but God is at work, see? I got involved in ministry uh, perhaps through the teaching that came from the Word of God in some such churches. So that wasn't because the pastor's uh, a character. It wasn't because of the pastor's you know, impressive uh, persona. It had nothing to do with that. You understood what the Word of God said, and then you responded to that. You were given that opportunity, and you began to grow. 
You're empowered to do ministry, perhaps. Perhaps you were released from some, from t- some deception that had, had dominated your life. You understood the Word of God. It was taught clearly to you. You were given the, the opportunity to respond, and you did. Ultimately, the person who delivered it is just a tool. It's only God at work in you, and they delivered the message. So I have a job to do, a trust that I discharge as one who must give an account, but ultimately, if anything good happens, it's all God. It's all the Lord. And most of the time, beloved, as you work through the ministry, and this is almost 30 years, you don't know what's going on. And that's perfectly fine. You just are a tool, and you're used for the job, and the Lord does the work. If you remember John 15, verse 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Do you remember this? This is not an unusual teaching here that Paul is bringing. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit. So you're, you're pulling that strength from him. And what about this? For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. For apart from me, you can do a few things because you bring a lot to the table. I mean, you've got a lot of talents and abilities in the church, right? We make that mistake often. Somebody comes in with some abilities in the world, and we think automatically they're going to be really, really effective in the church. Listen, the Lord doesn't need individuals who have tons of ability in the world to be effective in the church. He just needs people who are empty themselves of you, and then be weak, and the Lord can work through you, see. And Paul understood that principle very clearly. On to verse 8, he says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Number five, we have to give an account. is isn't just, you know, wishy-washy ministry, show up when you want to and show, not show up when you don't. That type of ministry is never part of the ministry we see, the urgent, fervent type of ministry where you own it and you, you participate in it. We all work on the same team, whether we're evangelists or teaching pastors or whatever it is that we do, and we have to give an account for that. And we'll get our honor from whom? From God. To the extent, then, that the minister found his sufficiency in the Word of God and the gospel, there's promised reward. And that's the reality for every believer. If you continue on to verse 10, you'd see that. Now, if you look back at our passage just very quickly, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. Here's the question. Did Paul get commended by them? No. That's the reason why he said it. Paul says, I've been humbled by the Lord. I've been gossiped about. I've been maligned by you. And then, so obviously that commendation we'll have to wait for. So Paul's like, I'll wait. Apollo says, I'll wait. Peter says, we'll wait. Right? I say, and every elder who served as... Uh, or has served, if they understand that principle, they just say, I'll wait, right? I, I'm a tool. We open up the Word of God. We give it to you. He gives you an opportunity to respond, and we'll wait. I guess it's not always, it's not always uh, sunshine and roses, right? We'll, and we'll all say that, you included. We'll have to wait. I'm well content to wait for that. And in the meantime, we'll have to be content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. It doesn't sound like much of a job description, right? Who's going who's gonna to apply? To do ministry. If, if you have to wait for the Lord to reward you at the end because you don't really know if you even did any good and you're only, the only good you're going to do is where you release the word of God into the hearts of people and, and thousands of churches across the country must not understand that because the word of God is never released for people to grow. And as I read the other day, um, churches are filled with people who love Jesus whom they don't know anything about. And so they don't know how to serve him and they don't know how to respond to him. So if you're doing that, then you just have to wait. 
and the reward won't be temporary, and it won't be fading, and we won't be judged on the whims of ungodly people. So Paul says, I have a clear conscience. I dealt with you faithfully. You are a letter written on my heart, and everybody's going to see that. We're going to see that in just a second. And in, in uh, verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 11, he says, In no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. You should have commended me, but you didn't. But you're our letter regardless. You're proof that the ministry I did was real. You're the letter of redemption. You're the letter of spiritual growth. Because God with faithful and the power of the word, and the letter written on our hearts, and it's the letter Jesus penned, and when people look at you, they can see it. In fact, 2 Corinthians 3, 2, You are our letter, he said, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. And before we move on from here, you know, and this illustration, really laying the ground for our new section, I think it's important to note something. I, I think it, there needs to be an exhortation here to the modern church, just like there is to the first century church, along with the encouragement. And, I, and, I, and we're not forcing this. I, you know the Corinthian church, so you know reason why Paul said what he said. You're a letter known and read by all men. And the exhortation, I think, is if you're a believer, people will know that's the no part. You're a believer, so people know that, right? Then if that's true, then your life is being read by men and women all the time, and that's the red part, okay? Known and read by all men. And so you can say this, then, whatever it is you do with your life, whatever you say, wherever you go, night or day, whatever you do with your family and your children and your single life or your job or your free time or your time on social media, whatever it is, your life is on display and people know that you're a believer. So in that reality, you can be extolling the cause of Christ or you can be maligning the cause of Christ. That's clear enough, isn't it? I mean, I, it's not a stretch to see that. If you're a letter known and read by all men, and people know you're a believer, then that means whatever you do with your time, however you run your business, however you run your, your office, whatever you do in your quiet time, whatever you do in your private time, day or night, with your family, with your children, with your single life, with your job, all of that, just take it all in, your whole life, whatever it is, and however you spend it, beloved, you're either extolling the cause of Christ or you're maligning the cause of Christ if you're a letter known and read by all men. And that was the, that was the exhortation to the Corinthian church, wasn't it? You're our letter. You can't take it away. It's engraved on my heart. However, you're a letter known and read by all men. That should be first and foremost in your mind, shouldn't it? We, we judge a doctor by his bedside manner. We judge a restaurant by its service and its food. We, we judge an artist by their art, don't we? And men and women can judge a church by its members and the claims of Christ by those who say they follow it. That's not a stretch. That's a poem by Paul Gibbert. It says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say, men read what you write, whether faithless or true, say what is the gospel according to you. See. And if you remember, Paul drew the Corinthian church's attention to this public aspect of Christianity when he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, he said, but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Do you remember that? Very embarrassing going on in the church. Do you remember what he said after that? He said, is there not wise person among you in the church which was a rhetorical question what was the answer of course there was and it's precisely what we talked about last time right we want to run to a therapist we want to run to uh, some kind of counselor some worldly person who's going to give you some information that's not going to set you free but produce more bondage is there not someone wise enough in the church to give you that instruction of course there is and just like here paul says listen this is not extolling christ 
Right? This is maligning the cause of Christ. You're defaming the name. And people are watching. Or how about Ephesians 4.1? Very, not an unusual subject for Paul. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, so I'm begging you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's not a stretch, is, it? is that, is that uh, an inappropriate requirement? To walk in a manner worthy of that which you've been called? Doesn't that kind of describe Christianity? That your testimony is in, such, in that way where you're extolling the cause of Christ? What's that going to look like, Paul? Well, okay, how about this? With all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. How about start with your family? Start with your spouse, with your children. How about with your immediate in-laws? And move on out, the people you work with. You want to extol Christ? You want to make Christ look good? Uh, Then walk in such a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. And show humility to them and gentleness and patience and tolerance in one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do that in the church, right? Is it more important to chase down everybody who's offended you and stay away because you don't really like people? Is that pursuing the, the, the diligent of unity in the, in the Spirit and the bond of peace? No, of course it's not. So again, people are watching. Are you extol- Berean is who we are. In the community, that's Berean. Regardless of what we say up here, regardless of what we say on the website, regardless of the slides we show, listen, we are who we are in the community. That's our testimony. So, so, you know, if Paul's exhorting them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, then there certainly is a possibility that they're not. Right? I mean, that's the whole point of the exhortation. You need to show more humility, right? And more gentleness and more patience and, and tolerance and preserve the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. He says the same thing to the church in Colossae. In Colossians 1.9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, heard of what? When you came to faith, the church has been established. We've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Isn't that what we'd like to do? That is sanctification, isn't it? Isn't that what every believer wants to do? That's precisely what we're called to do. And we find that as we release the, the, the work of the, of the Word of God in our own heart, and as we read it each day, we're going to be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, we know what His will is, and we have the wisdom about it, and then we apply it, see? So that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please Him in all, re- in all respects. Does that not again encapsulate Christianity, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please Him in every respect? I would say. You could sum up Christianity that way. None of us has arrived, but our desire and the direction of our life and the path that we're on and the pattern that's on us in our life is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. And what's that going to look like? Well, bear fruit in every good work. You get a chance to do something good to someone, do it. That's good work. That's good fruit from good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Find out what those good works are and start doing them. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Because we inherit a kingdom that doesn't fade away, we live in a certain way. That's not a surprise, right? And again, Paul says, I'm praying that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You're a letter known and read by all men. Walk in a manner that would be pleasing to him in all respects. Walk in a manner that you would bear fruit in every good work and so forth. So, not hard to understand. And the same exhortation in the church of Thessalonica reported to us in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. That you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
pretty straightforward. So back to our illustration. You are our letter, he said. Written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. That's your position. You are a letter of Christ, permanently written and preserved because the power of the gospel is sufficient. But that has to be lived out practically each and every day as people read this letter you're living out. See. So he says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, he said. And again, Paul shows his heart and affirms his love for them. That cared for is the verb diakoneo. That's where we get our word deacon, the noun, deacon, the position, certainly in the church, but that verb form, ministered to, served. Love is a verb, and Paul has been demonstrating his love to them. It's the word for table waiter, domestic attendant. I'm just so grateful. I say this not often enough that the guys who serve as deacons here are such a great example of this. They serve you. I don't think you know this. But they serve you so many different ways under the radar in just a very self-sacrificing way. They give up their time. They give up their you know, priorities to make sure things happen here in a loving manner. They serve you as a table waiter, waiter, as a domestic attendant. They're not looking for any recognition. And when we find men like that, see, when we find men who are doing that regularly, those are the kinds of men we want to pull into the deacon uh, group that's here that represents that kind of love and care, see. We've seen that word over and over again. And, and even though that applies certainly to the office, and, and Paul says that uh, I care for you, diakoneo, but that, that has to be the fabric of every effort for the kingdom. That applies to everybody. Everybody has to be that kind of w- table waiter. Everybody has to be that kind of, of servant, a minister, attending to one another. I mean, if there's any effort for the kingdom of God that's going to be effective, it's going to be attending to one another, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, it, it's always an act of, there's always good work in action. So Paul comes back to this topic of spiritual letters, and he says this is a letter from Jesus describing the transformation that occurred that Paul could use in his letter of commendation forever. See, Written, it says, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. The tablet of the human heart, the seed of who you are. This letter is written. Everything springs from the heart in biblical terms. That's the true power and sufficiency of the gospel to redeem. Spirit of the living God writes the letter of Jesus on the source of the real you. That's salvation. And then people watch your practical holiness and find out what that's supposed to look like. And you either extol the name of Christ or you defame the name of Christ. Way back in Exodus 31:18, Moses is on Mount Sinai. When God finished speaking to him, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. He gave, he gave Moses his top ten. These are the things I don't want you to do. Make sure you do these things. Make sure you don't do some of these things. So God gives his law to his people. He writes them on tablets of stone. They didn't obey it. They couldn't keep it. Their hearts were not transformed. They weren't an example to the nations. The letter the nations read was one of disobedience and of chastening and the wages of sin. That's what they read, right? The nations around Israel read that. And they walked by these destroyed cities and thought, wow, what, what kind of God is this? Didn't make God look that great, right? Same as in our life when he has to chasten us and people see one chasing after another and like, I don't think I want a relationship with God if this is what that person's life looked like. It, that's, that's defaming the name of Christ, right? When you live in disobedience as a Christian and the Lord has to di- uh, 
discipline you constantly. And people watch that are like, man, I'm not thinking I want to have a relationship with God if this is what a Christian's life has to look like. See? It was the same with Israel. And then Jeremiah 31, 33, God speaks of the future of his people. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and their hearts. I will write it and I'll be their God and they should be my people. That's still in the future for Israel, of course. We look forward to that, being Israel being in the center of God's attention. And that promise is secure. And then a series of promises began to come to the prophet in Ezekiel chapter 36, 24. It says, for I will take from you the nations to gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean and I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Catch this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. See, eventually there's going to be this letter written on their hearts and all nations will be able to read it and be drawn to the Lord. And that promise still stands out again in the future for Israel. But the nation rejected the Messiah when he came the first time. But some believed and the promise began to be fulfilled partially in Pentecost, didn't it? Some Jews believed, and then the Gentiles believed after that, and now the church is in the center of God's attention. A new heart and the resident Holy Spirit, who will never leave, has recorded God's righteous demands upon the heart of every believer, a spiritual document that will never, be fade, will never fade and never be broken. See? And the power of the Holy Spirit to obey, these are all of the things that the Apostle Paul brought to the church over the long haul, taught them clearly these things, faithfully, thanklessly, tirelessly, discharging his duty, so we can understand then when we get to verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 12, I have become foolish, you yourself compelled me, actually I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. And the point of the statement is this, this being so, the people should have stood with him when he came under fire. He rebukes them. I, I was owed this. I was obliged. That's what the word means. Commenda I was obliged commendation by you. And that's an interesting way to put that together. That's an interesting construction. Probably manifesting Paul's tact. <laughs> I mean, he could have said a whole lot of other things that were very, would have been very much a, a big rebuke. If, to illustrate that, just think about a, a military officer uh, talking to a subordinate and saying something like, I would be obliged if you would hand me that map. Right? I mean, but the request is, no less an order, and the subordinate takes it as an order, right? Even though it's tactfully said, right? Hey, could you bring that to me? Sadly, at Corinth, there's been disobedience, which, uh, which Paul understands here in terms of a breakdown of courtesy. That's how he describes it. You should have committed me. And it's the least thing he can say and not be hard on somebody, right? He had the right to be committed because people were obligated to him, uh, although they should have urged the false teachers and the backbiters and the discord sowers to pack their bags and be gone, right? That's what you expect the church to do. It's what he expected the Corinthian church to do. You've been taught correctly. These guys are false. Tell them to hit the road. They didn't do it. On the contrary, they were deceived and still to some extent by bad doctrine, false teaching, and claims of accomplishment that are really false. And it takes us back to our, our opening illustration. Paul's accomplished all this stuff. He got no accommodation. In fact, all that credit was given to people who didn't do any of it. And so here he is. And after all Paul's foolishness, who's been won over at this point? It doesn't appear that any of them have been. Uh, who's ready to denounce the bogus leaders for what they are? 
No one's come forward so far. Who's going to give Paul credit for the labor he accomplished? No one. And the continuing refusal of the Corinthian church to defend both the gospel and the first man to deliver it to them has constrained him to do what he has to do. And no doubt been a stab in his side constantly. And we know the apostles' tactic is to parade before their notice, albeit with great difficulty. That's why he calls it foolishness and reluctance, because he's nothing, his trip to heaven. And, and the difficulties of his life, which align with what Jesus said were, would be true of the true apostles, and they would endure that, I've become foolish, you compelled me. For in no respect, he says, was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. And we saw this understatement before, right? There, there's nothing in their racial or social or educational background which he does not more than match. That's why he says for no respect. That's in, in no category do they exceed me. But he says I'm a nobody on my own. He can't resist saying that because it's his incessant humility. He's, he's a nobody. And that is somewhat sarcastic because that's exactly what the false apostles said he was. He's a nobody. And he just agrees with me. Yes, I'm, I'm a nobody. It's true. I don't claim any kind of fame. I don't claim any importance. I'm just a tool God used, and I'm nothing, as a matter of fact. If you remember 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, he really addressed them there in the congregation. He said, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. Of course they're not, but I far more. You know, he says, I'm a nobody. I'm an earthen vessel. I'm a blasphemer formerly and a persecutor. I'm a nobody. Whatever I am, I am by the grace of, of God which is in me. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 9, right? Whatever I am, it's the grace of God that's in me. But as far as compared to them, I'm not inferior to them in any category. Now, when he refers to the most eminent apostles, he's a little sarcastic. And when we looked at that before, if you remember, back in chapter 11, verse 5, I told you it probably applies to both as he talks about the apostles. He's not inferior to the true apostles, and he's certainly not inferior to the false apostles. And, and he, those are the extra super apostles. That's what he labeled themselves. Um, when they talk, talk about Paul, the people, the false apostles that in Corinth are uh, considered themselves super apostles. I'm not the least bit inferior to these guys, right? It's sarcasm. They called themselves the great, they're the great ones and, and demanded, uh, demean Paul as a nobody. But he says, you know, in no category do I come behind them, though I myself am nothing. But you forced me into this comparison. You forced me to it because you wouldn't come to my defense. You forced me into this folly. And so we've laid the groundwork then for this next section. And we're going to wrap up here today because we're about out of time. So, so far in his letter, then, Paul has had to foolishly defend the authenticity of his ministry. And he's done that in two really two main ways. We've seen it expressed over a, a bunch of different ways, but in two main points. First of all, the Corinthian church itself. That's the divine seal of approval, right? The fact that the church was established, and every other church that Paul established is a stamp of the approval of the Lord. It wasn't him doing it. He said, I turned loose the word of God in you. You had an opportunity to respond, and you did. That's God doing it. Right? If I planted the seed or Apollos watered or I watered and Apollos planted, it didn't matter because we're nothing because God gave the increase. Right? You put the seed in the ground, that's all the labor from you. You plant your garden in the springtime, you cover it all up and all that and you water it. But you have nothing to do with what's going on below the surface. Right? That's just, that's the Lord has programmed that into that seed and that's the Lord bringing that harvest. And that's exactly the agrarian illustration he's using here. So, he plants the church, it becomes his seal of approval of his work and his call. First Corinthians 9 2, make that very clear. And then secondly, Paul's manner of life recommends him, right? And we've seen all that all the way through how he's 
you know, he doesn't know anything against himself. He's put away foolishness and, and things that would cause embarrassment, all that kind of stuff, see? His perseverance then, and we saw this most recently in, in chapter 11, through all the suffering that came to him and to all true preachers of the gospel uh, from the kingdom of darkness, right? He, he, uh, and Jesus made that very clear, that those who were true apostles would have these certain things. Be, they'd be handed over to authorities. They'd been persecuted. They'd be whipped. That happened to Paul. And also, we see his manner of life. He was never a burden to any of them, remember? He, he never took a dime from them so he could express his love for them and wouldn't cause anybody to stumble. Even though he had the right to take a salary, he didn't take one because he wanted to make sure they knew that he appreciated some who were weaker and didn't want to have that done. He was good with that. And in those points, the false apostles get no credit. They didn't do either of those things. Those, are all, those all belong to Paul. And then he's going to bring up this new defense. And this is where we're going to spend our time next week, Lord willing. In chapter 12, the signs of a market, true apostle, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And this is the third classification of qualification. And we haven't really seen this, and they're the signs of a true apostle. Those among whom Jesus and his followers moved were invariably sign seekers. They were looking uh, for outward verification of the truth of the gospel. The scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees required that Jesus uh, give them a sign that he was the Christ. On one occasion, he's asked to reveal the authority by which he empowered his activities. You know, the, the Jewish council asked Peter and John to disclose to them the power by which they healed the lame man, right? Greeks seek for wisdom. The Jews, states Paul, are asking for signs, 1 Corinthians one twenty-two. And signs there have been, um, the signs in Corinth have been in abundance. And they were given to validate the apostles' ministry. They were worked out among you by God. Now, we don't see that recorded in the, uh, the Corinthians, uh, the two letters that we have. But we know Paul says that that's the case. It is the case. But I think the important thing here, and the reason why we're going to spend one, at least one time looking at this just by itself, is because this is very prevalent today. People claim to be apostles. It's very prevalent. They claim to be apostles, and the accompanying signs, they claim to be theirs. And we already know that Paul said he was the last of the apostles born out of time, but that the signs were there to verify that he was who he was. So we've already looked at Paul being the last apostle, so no one can be an apostle after Paul. We've looked at that background. We'll look at that again, and we'll look at the signs, wonders, and miracles, and all of that. Because it's very prevalent today. They say there's apostles today with the accompanying uh, sign gifts. So uh, the verse is going to be a message unto itself because uh, this is the point Paul's making. These signs don't exist outside of true apostleship. That's what he means. You've got false apostles here. They do not have signs that verify who they are. I, on the other hand, he said, do. So that makes it just as relevant for the church now as it was then because they're believing that there are other apostles and there aren't, and they're believing that these other apostles are doing the sign gifts that they're supposed to do, and they aren't. And so it carries right into today's day. And so it's going to give us an answer for today, the same one Paul's giving to the church in the first century. And so that's going to take us and segue into next week's time in the word, Lord willing. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed to prayer if you would. It's been a joy to be with you today. I'm glad that you're back, and I hope your Thanksgiving was great. Lord, we thank you today for just this great opportunity to be together. It's so wonderful to be in fellowship. It's a joy to be in ministry together. It's a joy to um, just turn loose your word. It works in my own heart as it works in the hearts of those who hear and I pray that uh, we'll be quick to understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and then how that applies to me. And uh, we want to be a church like that, of course, Father. We want to be a church that understands uh, the purpose of the apostles and why they were here. 
we, we want to be able to understand the difference between what went on in Acts and what goes on in the epistles and, and to understand how the church was supposed to be governed and what happened and how the sign gifts came to an end. And those kinds of things are important because they were important where Paul was. He wasn't uh, being committed by the church. In fact, no one defended him. Nobody's been won over. And so this is that uh, constant stabbing in his side, perhaps, that he struggled so much with. But the fact of the matter is that they were a letter. And it was engraved on his heart. And the fact that the church was established, there were true believers there, and, and the gospel was going out is a marvelous testimony to the fact that you work through nobodies and accomplish things as long as the you and the me are diminished. Because you can work in power and perfect it in weakness. And that's where Paul was. And nobody could take that away. And regardless of it, whether anybody was won over, he already knew the stamp of approval was there. But he's going to give the church understanding. He's going to give them wisdom and, a, and a clarity of teaching so they can be quick to discern the error and understand their own deception. Again, by releasing the word of God amongst the congregation, people grow and we wish to do that too, Father. So I pray that you'll continue to work through us in that respect. And we pray all this, all of this, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.